0: score the podcast the only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers
1: and musicians from los angeles we're back
2: we're back this is
1: score the podcast i'm kenny holmes he's robert Kraft. hey robert
2: Robert yeah man i'm so happy to be back and so excited about this week's episode happy new year thank you so much yeah, I hope you had a good holiday season. And Very, a, very good.
1: I'm thawing out from a cold winter here in L.A. I'm
2: thawing out from two weeks in the Caribbean. You know, it really <laughs> takes a while to get back to this chilly 68, 69, yeah, 70 degree L.A. weather. It's just tough.
1: So excited to be back doing another episode. Um, we had our little off-season from season one, um, but we wanted to put together this special bonus episode uh, with our guest. You know her from Score, a film music documentary, and from all of the great season one segments, The Inside Track. And she's also the author of Psychology of Music, From Sound to Significance, uh, which we're going to be giving away a copy of her book to one of our listeners today, autographed. Uh, she's Dr. Su Lan Tan. Um, just super excited. I have I got a chance to hang out with her in Cleveland. She came to one of our uh, film festival Q&As, and I had as many questions as the audience. She's so interesting to to hear these studies and just a lot of the tricks that filmmakers and composers play on us, uh, and we don't even really realize they're doing it to us. They make us look in certain places. They make us feel certain ways, and she can articulate that in a way like nobody
2: else. It's really an interesting feel that she's one of the—she's on the vanguard of— the field that she calls the psychology of film music—it's yeah. not just the psychology of music, which she's certainly an uh, expert in—but she has studied film, and to hear her talk about why certain scores work, where they work, is just—it's incredibly enlightening.
1: Not too many people in the field. She's uh, yep. one of the trailblazers, and she's also a, a professor at Kalamazoo College who teaches classes on this, which. I'm so jealous that I don't live there because I would love to I'm sit I'm thinking in. of moving. <laughs> yeah, or maybe just maybe a little uh, fall.
2: Road trip.
1: Spend the fall in Kalamazoo. It sounds like a song. Um, also on today's episode, uh, in honor of our guest, we're going to be calling back our first episode of The Inside Track. Nice. One of our favorites, in case you missed uh, when that episode aired discussing how composers end films with music and how they can leave you hanging or let you feel complete or not sure how to feel. Um, the end or is
2: it? Is the yeah, name it's of such the a episode. big decision. It's such a big decision what the last note will be.
1: And later in the episode as well, uh, we're going to be selecting a few of your questions. We put out a little feeler on uh, Twitter and Instagram asking you to send in your questions. We have selected a few to ask Dr. Dr. Tan. And one of you will be winning an autographed uh, copy of one her book. One of you book. will
2: be winning an Oscar.
1: Yeah, and an Oscar maybe. I don't know. I don't have the authority to give that out. Um, but, yeah, she'll be signing and personalizing a book and uh, shipping it your way. So we'll get to your questions. A lot of good questions. Thanks for uh, sending those in. And uh, we can't wait to get to that. Robert, we are smack dab in the middle of awards season we're coming off golden globes weekend we got the grammys coming up we got the oscars coming up uh one of the big headlines while we were away in our hiatus was uh some of these oscar flubs in submitting um solo of course scored by john powell and john williams didn't make the submission deadline i don't know how this happens I don't know how this happens with John Williams and John Powell's name attached to it. What, first off, is it a rigorous process to submit for the Oscars for a score?
2: Did someone get fired over this? I can just tell you that um, missing this is a little bit like I, I don't know what kind of simplicity it is. The This submission process is, you know, I'm very grateful and humbled to be a member of the music branch of the academy Mm -hmm. for the oscars and um i also had scores submitted and so i see it from both sides there's a form it's that simple it is supposed to be filled out by the composer but the composer particularly composers of that level and that magnitude williams and powell two of arguably certainly our biggest composers on the planet Um, have a lot of representatives who are the delegation is get everything teed up they sign it i mean it's really the form is when did you write it you know is it in the calendar year of the score is it uh when was the movie released these are just academic questions there's nothing kind of big and emotional about the form it's a submission form to the academy and there's a deadline Whatever that deadline is, midnight on December 31st or something like that. I think
1: it's in November.
2: It might be in November. and uh, Well, I think they got it in by midnight of December 31st. <laughs> That's clearly <laughs> the issue because... New Year's <laughs> Eve party, they right? sent it in. Somebody, I mean, I just don't want to be there when you look at the nominations and you're all upset that your film wasn't nominated and you call and say, I wonder why, and somebody says, um... Could you hold, please? Because they've forgotten to submit the form. It's that simple. If you miss a deadline, you miss a deadline, period. And
1: look, this isn't an indie film. We're talking The Goat. I mean, Rushmore, John Williams, a John Williams score, which is, I mean, the score is great. The movie didn't do so well, but the score for Solo is great and would no doubt be a contender, at least on a short list. But I mean, I can't even imagine what John Powell and, and John Williams thought when they saw that. I mean, this is like a, a football team
2: forgetting to show up for the Super Bowl. Right. Exactly. <laughs> oh
1: God. We're like, perfect. oh, we forgot the bus that's was right. leaving. It's oh, Sunday. We're all, oh. wait,
2: we're all asleep. Wait, were we supposed to be in line somewhere? So that's a. Uh, that's just a, just Murphy's law, of course. But there were some other disqualifications. I always find those interesting because. I used to, uh, I think I've given up trying to figure out a lot of the very, very specific rules of the music branch because they are very specific. They have their reasons. Almost every year there's some kind of argument. This year there were, uh, a couple fairly traditional areas that were disqualifiers, um, Green Book, a wonderful film directed by Pete Farrelly uh, mm-hmm. of the Farrelly brothers and Other Side of the Wind which is the uh, Orson Wells story. They were both disqualified because of a very specific rule in the Academy that says the amount of original score has to be 51% to the amount of source music which obviously cannot be more. So uh you know.
1: So let me ask you this. If with the judging, is it really that like do they time out they do and they, they people do, do with the do watches. the math problem and they say people
2: with stopwatches and then there's a big thing. Is this an original piece of music or is this did you just recut a cue that was originally in the film? Whatever it is, I think it's uh you know, of course it the Academy's trying to honor the Creative craft C R A F T of film composing, so they don't want you to win the best music award for a film that's 15 songs and 12 minutes of music. So, of course, yeah,
1: Bohemian Rhapsody is not going to be in the the running for that. (laughs) A
2: lot of movies that are very score heavy, uh, just you don't even think about it.
1: Do the the filmmakers are are they aware of this? Like if, if someone hires John Williams for a film, John Williams, is probably not the best example, but are they making sure that 51% of the film has a score, original score so they can make sure that this gets a chance? Cause I would sometimes s- a movie can win only one Oscar and it's for the score. Yeah.
2: And that's a big mark for the film. My experience with filmmakers and music is that they care about, I think we're up to a thousand things. And then a thousand and one is the music and the award. Uh, It's just, they want to make the best movie possible, and if they need to put in lots and lots of songs. The hardest part for me on one of these disqualifications, Green Book, is that the music was such a huge achievement. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chris Bowers is the composer. He played all of Mahershala Ali's piano parts and taught him how to play so it looked exact. Uh, The score is really wonderful, and some of the songs are pre-existing, so... But they were re-recorded. It's just that's know, such a that's
1: got to be such a letdown when that comes out, and you go, "Well, you worked all this way, and you're not even in the competition." Yeah. So I don't know, and it's a fight every year. And there, there's one a... other one too, uh, <clears throat> Mandy, which is uh, Johan Johansson's final score. Oh, yeah. And this is a tricky one because this is sort of a new problem. Yes. Um, th- this didn't exist 15 years ago, which is the the film was released on VOD streaming before it finished its theatrical requirements so a lot of films um well every film that wants to be qualified for the oscars they have to do i think what is it an eight or nine day run in a theater three times a day in new york and la and there there's a bunch of parameters they have to hit so if this movie comes out on hulu or itunes or something like that before it meets those requirements it's 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 out
2: exactly right exactly right i think it's seven days And I think it has to be seven days in a theatrical presentation on a big screen in a movie theater uh, in it might be New York and L.A. Yeah, I think it is. And it has to be by midnight of December 31st. Correct. So you can release as sometimes if you're looking carefully, some movies are released on December 24th in two theaters. You go, oh, I really want to see that. I wonder why it was only two theaters. Well, they're going to come out again in February. With a wide release. Right. But they want to be absolutely in contention for some Oscars right now. So they release it and they play it from a Monday to a Monday.
1: I think they did that with The Post last year.
2: Ah, I've Where it came on. out
1: for like a week in the end of December just to get into the qualification. And it's like, oh, I missed it. It's already gone. No, no, no. It's just they're, they're getting into Obviously, the qualification. The
2: danger is you come out for that week. And you get bad reviews. Yeah. And then you come out again and nobody cares. So you can, it's a very lethal strategy. But of course, this is specific to the fact that, well, if you go to Netflix with the movie first, you exempt yourself from the Academy Awards, even if you put it in theaters. And we're seeing that now. Right now on Netflix, there are a number of pictures that are in theaters. Mm-hmm. So. They had to come out first in a theater somewhere before they went to Netflix if they're interested in awards. And some pictures you just figure, I don't know if on Mandy.
1: Yeah, maybe the budget wasn't there to even do a campaign. Yeah, they just
2: just thought we're just going to make as much money in any place we can. VOD, video on demand, that's what that is, or theatrical. Um, And so let's just get it out there. And if somebody picks us up for an award, wouldn't that be great? And if not, that wasn't our focus.
1: Well, my condolences to... John Powell and John Williams for not getting solo in the yeah. running because the score was incredible. And Han Solo's theme by John Williams was incredible. And I just, when I, when I saw that headline, I think I texted you and yeah. mash Raider mm. instantly and said, are you did you see this? Are you kidding me? Oh man.
2: I, yeah. I'd like to send condolences also to Chris Bowers who did green book. Yeah. And also of course, Johan Johansson, the fabulous composer. It would have been lovely to hear his name read out at the awards, Absolutely. But, uh, we're going to have to leave it with reading it out at score the podcast.
1: Well, Robert, uh, I'm so glad to be back with you. Um, of course, uh, Matt Schrader, who normally, uh, you know, was in a, a huge part of creating this podcast and, uh, was running the board all through season one.
2: He's off working on some. He's exciting
1: things. I know
2: that he's rearranging his sock drawer today. Yes, and so he. We said, "Hey, man, can you help us?" He goes, "You know, I got it." First of all, his priority level was sock drawer. Yeah, so I and I understand that.
1: Um, so he'll be joining us uh, as we come down the line yeah. with uh, season two, which if the socks are. Finished. I just dropped that
2: season two. <laughs> That's exciting. We're working on it. Uh, I hope there are a few composers left that we haven't gotten on. Oh, you think we, there are any we've left? got
1: a list, baby.
2: Oh, good. Phew. Um
1: We are putting together season two. As you're listening to this, um, more details to come. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Score the Podcast. Oh, it's so exciting to be back. Kenny, we're going to rock. We're going to rock. And this special bonus episode to kind of kick off the new year and really get your brain working. um, We've got Dr. Sulantan.
2: Can't wait to hear what she has to say.
1: Score a film music documentary and season one of Score the Podcast. And she's going to be getting to our questions and your questions. Much more
2: to come. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey guys, Robert Kraft, and I'm inviting you to check us out on Twitter for the latest from the show, giveaways, videos, maybe even a new track from that pop superstar, Jordan Bieber. Check out our handle on Twitter at Score the Podcast. Now, back to the show. Welcome
1: back to our special bonus episode of Score the Podcast. We're so excited for our guest. Uh, you've heard her. Uh, First off, on Score, a film music documentary... Heard and seen her. Heard and seen her. Uh, All the way from Kalamazoo, Michigan. She's a professor, and also uh, her latest book, Psychology of Music from Sound to Significance,
2: second edition. And I think she's not only a college professor, but clearly, if we engage... By the amount of remarks we got about her performance in our documentary, yeah. she may be a movie star. She is a movie star. <laughs> I think so. Well, when we went to Cleveland
1: for the uh, film festival, uh, Cleveland International Film Festival, she did a QA and a with us. And it was the best Q&A we did of the entire run of uh, score. And, would you uh, like to
2: introduce I would. specific Aww. guest? We,
1: we would like to welcome in Dr. Sulan Tan. We've been saying her name wrong on the, on the season, but it, apparently uh, you can say it multiple ways Her family calls her in different ways. So welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Hi, Kenny. Hi, Robert. It's really a pleasure to be here on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: And this is a special uh, edition of the episode in that you're the first guest um, coming through FaceTime. We're talking to you Mm. from all the way from Michigan um, because of obviously we like to be in people's studios. But today we're here in uh, Holmes Productions. (laughs) <laughs> Our travel budget
2: has been restricted, yes. So that we can, uh, the the idea which we wanted, which is to fly to Kalamazoo and interview you in person, we're going to save for next season. I don't know if I have a jacket big enough for Kalamazoo. <laughs> well, I'd like to
0: say it's, uh, you know, hello from snowy Michigan, but it's not snowing today there's no yeah. snow on the ground um, we live in a kind of a woodsy area so one of the most beautiful things we sometimes see around this time of year is blanket of snow and then a whole like a family of deer crossing nice. our lawn it's just so gorgeous but no snow today
1: I love oh. the way everything you say sounds like way better than anyone else would say it. And for a podcast, (laughs) you just painted a beautiful visual picture. I love that. I wish I was seeing deer out the window. We got uh,
2: got hazy
1: skies and... Hazy skies (laughs) and traffic. Um, Sulan, again, is a music psychologist and uh, specifies in the study of film music, which is so interesting because you're almost kind of a trailblazer in that not a lot of people have... Have done these studies. There's a small group of you. Am I wrong on that?
0: Yes, it's actually a small group. It started about 35 years ago that people started looking at film music because, you know, film is so complex, music is so complex. So it's not something that all experimental researchers are really drawn to.
2: It's so interesting because, of course, it was actually through the documentary that I became aware that it was even a field. I mean, I'm so, as you can imagine, I'm so sensitive to the relationship of picture to sound and story to music and all these things. But I never thought of the academic approach and why I respond the way I do.
0: Yeah, I think for me, from for from a personal point of view, it's about the magic. You know, m- movies bring so much magic to our lives. We kind of live a million lives more than we can because of movies. And then, as a researcher, it's the mysteries that draw me in. There's so many mysteries about how music works in film. So was, it's just you know just a, a rich area of of research.
1: Was there a moment or a film or a. a- a score that drew you into this study, or how did you get into this field specifically?
0: Well, it's interesting. My mother was a uh, piano teacher who taught at home. So when I was in the crib next to her and in playpen, I probably have listened to and overheard a hundred different piano lessons, hundreds of piano lessons. And my grandfather, my father's father, actually owned a cinema in uh, Indonesia. And my wow. father, yeah, my father is an electrical engineer, and his specialty is loudspeakers and sound systems. And he's put sound systems into cinemas. So it's kind of like, you know, it's it, mysterious how these early foundations in our lives sometimes echo later in our lives. Yeah. So maybe it all came from there.
1: So you grew up in Indonesia?
0: I was born in, in Indonesia, and then I uh, moved to Hong Kong when I was about four.
1: So were you watching Hollywood movies in Chinese or what was your early, you know, introduction to Hollywood film music?
0: Yeah, actually, I don't speak Chinese. I, I grew up with uh, Indonesian and Dutch, and I actually wow. learned how to speak English when I went to uh, grade school. Uh, I had to pass an exam. You had to, you know, if you didn't speak uh, natively you had to have an interview. And I actually failed my interview for first grade because so, oh. I didn't know enough English. I was like, you know, welcome to first grade. You've already, you know, you've already failed an exam.
2: Oh,
0: <laughs> but my, fir- yeah, my first, um, my first forays actually was through Disney movies. So that's the first uh, kinds of films I remember. I remember going to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I remember going to a lot of Disney movies with my family.
2: I wonder if you walked out with your family as a a toddler and everyone was talking about the story and the dwarfs and Snow White. And he said... You know, there was a cue uh, <laughs> under Snow White in the second act that I feel. But was there a? When did you decide this was an academic pursuit, a real legitimate area of interest, which is this fascinating arena yeah, you, that you're you in? Yeah, you teach
1: courses at Kalamazoo College on specifically on psychology of film music.
0: Psychology of music, yes, oh, and I also. Music. Right, and I also teach uh, child development courses as well. That's my yeah. other area. Um, mm-hmm. But I always was interested in, in uh, composing. So I started composing. I composed for about nine years. I was very active in that. And I was a music major, so my bachelor's degree is music. And then I went to psychology. And once I was in psychology, I thought, well, I put this together with music. Because I was so interested in composition, I started to study how people engage with music when they're listening so without anything to do with film. But it was kind of esoteric, so when I went to start teaching, my students couldn't always understand what my research was about. So one day I was thinking, well, you know, I'm doing research where you actually have to have a background in music theory. I want to do something that everybody can kind of get into and understand. And I was standing in our basement where we have a lot of posters of films. So I thought, well, what about film music? It started like that. It's well, wonderful. Wonder, Yeah, I wonder what people have found out about film music. And it started off like that. And also because I've always really loved the little extras, you know, eight or nine minute of extras on DVDs mm-hmm. showing about the composer I always thought that's the best part of the DVD. Uh, Why is it only eight minutes long? I want 80 minutes, you know? And now you guys have actually given that present. So we have 93 minutes of score, the film music documentary.
1: And we're able to explain it better with the help of
0: you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's actually one of my favorite parts of the movie where they show the goosebumps and uh, what happens. And I I find it, fascinating i really do I, I i think it's an incredible perspective on something that we take for granted do you and- think
1: do you think that um using film music because you said your students were having trouble connecting to classical music maybe it, it, they didn't grow up with it they're not comfortable with it but what is it about the connection between especially the younger people and and film music it's still classical music it's the same instruments, it's the same setup of an orchestra, but why does that connect with them differently, do you think, with your students? Well,
0: it probably has to do with the power of contextualizing it in a story and the whole ebb and flow of the story, bringing out some of the nuances of the, the music. Um, I think that would be, that would be it. the combination of music, powerful music and powerful scenes, powerful imagery and performances, Sort of the, the magic of those two things together, I think, is probably much more than one of each of those alone.
1: Are you seeing a growing interest at, at more and more over the years with, you know, social media? There's w- much more information and every, all this stuff is way more attainable uh, for young people to, to be interested in. Are you seeing your classes overflowing? Like, w- what is the situation in, in schools for, for this type of study?
0: Yeah, psychology of music is growing. When I first started, I was in uh, in college and then in graduate school. It wasn't really an established field yet. And now we have societies, we have conferences every year, multiple mm-hmm. conferences, international, lots of different places around the world, as well as here in the U.S. as well. And uh, among my students, I get so many students in my classes, not just psychology of music, but just coming up to talk to me about how much they love soundtracks. And it's just wonderful to see, right? It's wonderful to see soundtracks like The Greatest Showman just breaking all sorts of historical records, right?
2: Yes. I wonder, um, when you say your students come up and tell you about soundtracks, do composers contact you or come up to you to say... I mean, ideally, would they ever say, "Could you listen to this and tell me if I'm nailing it the way that I <laughs> intending? I'm intending narratively. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for goosebumps here. Yeah. How do I- <laughs> Is there a, a chord that I'm missing? Well, I have would have those conversations.
0: I don't think I would be able to tell a composer what to do. Um, <laughs> what what composers do actually just absolutely, uh, just absolutely strikes me as awesome. Uh, they're able to do something that I cannot understand. And I think I'm going to spend my whole lifetime trying to unravel what they do and how they do what they do. Um, my research is really more descriptive. I find out, you know, what, why does this scene work? But I don't think it's prescriptive. It's not something that's a formula where, oh, here's the results of the study, and this is how I should compose. Um, but yes, I've heard from researchers, from uh, people who are studying, composing for film, as well as people in the industry, because of SCORE. And very often I get emails. Yeah, I get emails that begin with, I was on a plane, (laughs) because SCORE is playing on so many airlines. So they'll say, I was on a Delta flight, or I was on the plane the other day. Yeah, and I saw this wonderful movie, and then they'll reach out to me. And I've heard from um, accompanists, silent film accompanists, hmm. who will say, um, I really appreciated." A lot of them are just so thrilled. There's a film that puts film composers in the spotlight and their talents in the spotlight. Yeah. So, um, yeah.
2: I'm just curious, in a typical Sulantan curriculum <laughs> or curricula, do you actually show picture in your class? Do you, will you show a scene, and that scene from E.T. that we talk about in the movie or gladiator or show something and then take apart the way the music supports the scene?
0: Yes. In two of my, uh, two of my classes, we often do that. So I teach a class. I just get to be so lucky teaching the classes I do because they're so hmm. fascinating. One is psychology of creativity. And in Mm. Psychology of Creativity, we have a module that is looking at uh, sound, not just uh, music. We're looking actually at Foley, uh, Foley art, as well as sound effects and also music and how those work together within a scene. Uh, We do that also in Psychology of Music as well. And I have to say, last year, my entire creativity, so Psychology of Creativity class and also some of my psychology music, we all went to see Score, a film music huh. documentary together. Oh. Good, we yeah. need the money, so that's good. <laughs> I hope
1: they paid. fully, of course. For those yes. listening, Foley is the, the recording of stage sounds for, for films. Correct. So everything you see on the screen is recorded by a group of people. It's an incredible process. There's There's videos on YouTube you can check out, but it's a really cool process. And also,
2: I must say that at Fox the Foley Stage, which was right next to my office, was one of the most fun places to play hooky for mm. me. <laughs> I would actually go to the building next door. There were two Foley artists, both women, who were really legendary Foley artists, and you'd go into their little room, you couldn't believe it, I'm sure you've seen, you know, pictures or they had the whole floor was laid out with sand and gravel and water. Uh, yes. and they'd splash around or they'd do footsteps, footsteps yeah. yeah all that. It's Sometimes such a cool basketballs process. bouncing them or locks is really great.
1: And and as you uh, went through in one of the inside track episodes, a lot of uh, noises like that are used as score. Yeah. a lot now with the yep. creativity yes. of some of these composers.
2: I thought the psychology of creativity would be reduced to uh, because, of course, all of us work at varying degrees with artists and creative artists, musicians and songwriters. The psychology of creativity, I always thought could be reduced to, "Do you like me?" <laughs> because that's why, that's why uh, often people are so driven to make things. I find, I mean, I'm having spent my life in it, sort of looking for applause and approval and and love that they maybe never got, which I know reduces it. But there's an engine in a lot of artists to fill themselves up, and creativity becomes a way of finding approval. I don't know if that enters into your psychology classes.
0: Yeah, I I think psychology and creativity, it's all about expressing oneself. We all want to sort of make a distinctive uh, statement. Um, One of the interesting things when I'm teaching my psychology of creativity and psychology of music class, and we talk about film sound, is that After watching so many years of film, they're surprised when I point out to them the ventriloquist effect, an illusion that we have when we're watching uh, film. So I point out to them, for example, that when someone is speaking, the sound isn't coming directly from their lips on the screen. So because in the next scene, the you know, the lips might move to another spot. So the the sound isn't coming from exactly where the lips are moving. That's an Ugh. audiovisual illusion. So when I point this out to my students, they're like, wait, what? Oh, of course, the sound isn't coming directly from the lips of Ingrid Bergman, for example, or Humphrey Bogart, because in the next scene, the lips might move somewhere else. But it just looks so convincing to them that it's coming from So you from almost there.
1: have to... You have to. your brain has to tell you where to look, which is kind of what goes into the eye-tracking.
0: Exactly. The, the study
1: you talked about eye-tracking. I wanted to ask you about eye-tracking a little bit because we, we touched on it in Score, but you mentioned that m- most of the time when people are watching a film, the majority of the audience is looking on the same spot on the screen at the same time. Is that something that filmmakers take into account? Do they do things based on those studies? Or is it just an interesting thing to point out after the fact? Like, how is that used, do you think, in filmmaking? Is, is that something that they take uh, account for?
0: I think in filmmaking, mainly it has to do with the visual, the mise-en-scene, the way that we arrange things on the screen so that the eye is driven to those spots. But I think eye tracking is interesting because it can show us a little bit more about what directors are doing instinctively. Their instincts are so good about where people will look. Um, And so, for example, if we are looking at a scene, we find from eye tracking that most people are very drawn to uh, several things, faces, hands, and text. Um, They're also looking at bright spots, within darker uh, scenes, for example. Mm. So we can kind of see where people tend to look visually, but then music can also help you to look where you're supposed to look. So two things. One thing is if the music is doing something very similar to what's happening on the screen, your eye will tend to look there. And that's based, again, back on that, ven- that ventriloquist effect, that illusion. So usually if, for example, we see a horse across the screen right we think okay the sounds of the hoofs falling where they're falling that's where the sound is coming from so when we see a horse going and we see we hear sound we tend to look at where the hoofs are even though the sound isn't coming from there the same thing yeah and the same thing when we're hearing something like music going up or music going down if there's something that's moving along with it we're more likely to look there and you can kind of create illusions so for example Say you wanted wanted to show a scene where you want the viewer to look at something that's very big, like a dinosaur in the front of the scene, and the dinosaur is moving very slowly. So if you have music that's fitting sort of with that very low bass, slow sound, you're more likely to have viewers looking there. But if, for example, you have in the background, let's just say a little poodle running in the background and you want people to actually look at the poodle, then if you have music that's like very light and playing at the same uh, rhythm as the (laughs) poodle moving, you're more likely to draw people's eye towards that poodle. So if Mm. I want the audience to say, hey, don't look at the poodle back there because I don't want you to see it until the third or fourth time you see the movie because that's a clue for the story we can kind of draw that audience eye away.
1: That's incredible. You I think we had a discussion in Cleveland about this kind of, but that goes back to the ventriloquist effect is is how when we're babies, our attention is first drawn for hearing, so you look to things that you're hearing.
0: Yeah, actually my other area is uh, psychology, developmental psychology. So I'm interested in infant development, child development. And we actually have learned that we're able to start hearing. So our auditory system is already functioning about three months before we're born. Wow. So about three months before you're born, you're already sensitive, sensitive to sounds that come through to the to the womb. So any sounds that are... A little louder than sixty decibels, which is quite a loud sound, sort of like as loud as music would be playing, you know, um, like in a in a pub, for example. That kind of music kind of goes through to the to the womb inside the womb. Um, so yeah, there I, are. I certain used to take sounds- my
2: both boys to a lot of rock concerts before they were born. I mean, I used to. We would go as a couple and. Um- they kicked, particularly. <laughs> the oldest one really seemed to like reggae. So so uh, you
1: you heard it first. If you have a, a baby on the way, yes. get your John Williams Ab- album out and mm. put the headphones Absolutely. on. Absolutely. <laughs> put the headphones on your tummy. Uh, That's what, so interesting. We're going to take a quick break. Much more to come with Dr. Sulan Tan, who's joining us all the way from Michigan. Uh, but first, a little treat. The first episode of the Inside Track, The End, or is it...
0: Side track with music psychologist Dr. Sulan Tan. At the end of a musical phrase, music can sound like it's still continuing and has more to say, or like it has ended. In a study by Thompson, Rousseau and Sinclair, they showed that whether the music feels like it has ended or will continue can affect to what degree we feel like a film scene has ended or will continue. Compare the second and third Matrix films scored by Don Davis. Here's how The Matrix Reloaded ends. And here's the ending of The Matrix Revolutions. One leaves us at a point of high tension musically. The other gives more closure, but still leaves some degree of openness. It's also possible that people read different degrees of closure into the same musical endings. For instance, here's the end of Up with music by Michael Giacchino. A number of research studies suggest that some listeners focus more on what happens to the melody, the high notes you hear in the piano. In that case, the ending is musically quite open. Others are more sensitive to what's happening in the harmony, the low notes you hear in the piano. If that's you... This ending will feel more closed because the last chords return back to the tonic chord or home bass. This allows individual viewers to feel different degrees of openness and closure in the music and plays an important part in shaping the way they experience this final scene. Lastly, lack of closure can also be powerful. At the end of Inception, Hans Zimmer's music builds up expectations for a grand musical close. Instead, we come to a quiet ending with the final image of a spinning top and a few soft strains of sound. picture and sound cut off abruptly. Not only is there no closure musically, there's no closure sonically as the final tone doesn't fade away naturally. We finish that sound in our minds as we do the meaning of the closing sequence. So in the final scene, the last musical notes are as important as the last visual image to tune where on that scale of tension and resolution we're finally left at the end of a film. Dr. Sulan Tan is a leading researcher in the study of film music and the author of many books, including her latest Psychology of Music from Sound to Significance available now at score-movie.com podcast.
2: Hi, this is Tom Junkie XL. You're listening to Score the podcast. And now let's go back to the show.
1: welcome back to score the podcast we're here joined by dr sulan tan who is a professor of psychology in the study of music and uh that first block i mean we, that could be the end of the show already that was so much stuff to take in i i've, I've been really it's enjoying really
2: this super interesting certainly to musicians i'm sure to find out that there's more to what they're doing than just simply putting notes on us. They're a,
1: messing with us. Yeah, they are messing with us. <laughs> and, and they deaf, know it.
2: And manipulating us. I thought that ventriloquism aspect that you talked about was very interesting It makes me think if directors, when they set up shots, you have somebody in the middle and then you cut to another camera and the, obviously the voice travels with the actor. You've just basically taught me something about movie making that I haven't thought about and I've only seen... I've I think I'm up to a billion movies, and I've never thought about these things, so thank you.
1: If you can blow Robert Kraft's mind...
2: Yes, you did it. You're killing it. You did it.
1: Um, I wanted to ask you about... We did an episode of The Inside Track on Mm. season one talking about marches and waltzes, and this is something... This is an age-old style, back to classical music, but it's still used very much today, and... As somebody who wasn't trained in music theory, I mean, just growing up with standard pop culture and, and TV and music, why does this resonate so much with the average person, even if you're not taught what a march is or a waltz? What is it about that age-old style that's still used today?
0: I think that really still has to do with the the human body being symmetrical. So I talked about that on the segment, um, but to elucidate a little because our bodies are symmetrical, the duple time is the most natural way to feel rhythm because we feel it every time we walk, right, left, right, left, right. We feel it when we're gesturing. Because we're symmetrical, there's this inbuilt sort of embodied cognition that has to do with two times. Um, And there have been studies that show that even babies respond more sensitively to music that is in two times. So like strong beat, weak beat, strong weak, weak beat, like that, as opposed to one, two, three, one, two, three. And the one, two, three, one, two, three is really the music of leisure. It's the music we dance to rather than what we march to. So there's this, I think, instinctive kind of reaction to the difference between two and three. our
1: brains just think of dancing that's just so interesting to me though that you don't really have to be taught that it's just instinctive to know that that's a happier rhythm and you shouldn't feel down or if Mm -hmm. if like you said if darth vader's marching in it's low and it's pounding and it's it's more boom 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 you feel like oh oh no like john debney said oh boy something's (laughs) something's not right yeah
0: It's in, So well, much you... of music is instinctive. It's in the body.
2: Well, of course, and it's sort of, I mean, this is such an interesting area. It's certainly the basis of a lot of Western music coming from the drumming of Africa and mm. the rhythmic underpinning of music that comes from Africa into first Europe and then brought over on boats uh, and really interesting history of the way that European music and and African music informs Western music. I'm wondering, though, there's certainly cultures that two and three are just a part of their music. So when you have, and for those of you that are musicians or non-musicians, actually, two and three are the two kinds of structure that Zulan's talking about, which is one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, which is a march beat, and three as she said is one two three one two three which is a leisure beat but there's certainly one two three four five one two three mm-hmm. four five and other beats and other cultures so how do you it's not like uh in southeast asia or you know they're not symmetrical and we're in beats that are often nine or seven these odd beats i'd just be curious to know Is that a sophisticated evolution of what you're talking about? Two, two plus three is a beat in seven. How do you you look at those odd meters?
0: Yeah, and when we say odd meters, they're only odd relatively speaking, right? In many places in the world, they would not be the odd meters. Yes. Those would be the meters that that we feel. So I think there's just so many ways that we can craft music. And this is just... (laughs) <laughs> I have just thought about that too and so there's so many ways because really music is organizing sound we can organize sound in so many ways in some studies we found that when people who are raised with western music hear these complex rhythms, polyrhythms and complex kinds of rhythms that are based on 5 or 7 or 11 for example, what we tend to do when we hear it is we hear it in 2s and 3s It tends Mm. to migrate. We kind of tidy it up through our ears and our minds in ways that become more familiar to us. So, yes, we have so much to learn from music from all over the world. I'm so glad that soundtracks are becoming more and more diverse. We are drawing from more um, different kinds of traditions of music because we have so much to learn, not just from rhythm, but different kinds of harmonies, different kinds of thinking about melody, and and so many variations.
2: I I apologize to the non-musician who's listening, but that was a tremendously interesting and deep conversation, and you corrected me on something that I appreciate when I called it odd meters. You're right. (laughs) It's only odd to the Western ear. It's not odd, of course, and uh, why so many western musicians when they go into other cultures that are not using exclusively two and three they say this thing i had trouble finding one you mm-hmm. hear that a lot you have trouble finding the downbeat because the meters are not obvious
1: who way over my head it's as so a non- cool though. Musicians.
2: yeah very cool for but, our musical but very interesting
1: fans um i wanted to i have a clip Uh, from score that I want to play. And then I want to ask you, um, this is uh, a clip from junkie XL, uh, Tom Holkenborg in the film.
0: I don't care what music it is, but if I make a track, it has to give me goosebumps myself. I don't say that to be arrogant, but if it doesn't hit me in the stomach as being a great piece of music, I cannot expect the audience, anybody out there to have a feeling that it hits the stomach.
1: So he, he wants to achieve the goosebumps. I think that's probably the goal of every composer. Um, I guess the question is: Is there a way to achieve goosebumps? I know we talked about the reward center and the way we feel uh, uh, when we get goosebumps. Can you know certain things can trigger that? But are most people getting goosebumps at the same time when when something like that has happened? Is that just human culture, or is it? Are we drawing from personal connections? Um, is there any way to really explain that?
0: I think the closest would be uh, there are studies on chills, so musical chills and feeling, uh, for for example, a spine-tingling feeling. Uh, that's also related to goosebumps as well. There's a lot of research on that. A couple of things that have come from that research are uh, we tend to feel chills in music when something happens like a melody rises out of a... Uh, harmonic pattern. So when we suddenly hear melody, sort of rising up above a lot of music, but another thing has to do with surprise. So if there's something unexpected that happens in the music, uh, that also can. Uh, help us feel something grander. The other thing too is that people respond differently to the same piece of music. So there was a study in, I think it was in 2011, looking at how the same piece of music played with piano versus a small brass quintet, so five people playing brass versus an orchestra, how people respond differently in terms of how much they feel tension. And they found that People with musical training responded differently to people who didn't have musical training. They both were very sensitive to tension and emotion in music, which is very related to, to these goosebumps. But people who uh, didn't have musical training tended to feel more of that with piano music, and those mm. with musical training tended to feel more of that with orchestral music. They were both very sensitive, but they were sort of responding differently. So I think when we talk about, yeah, when we talk about music, we have to also think about how we talk about a score like it's one thing. But every listener is actually reacting in a slightly different way. We're all individual listeners. So what we bring in, whether it's music training or with our our associations with the music, what our likes are and dislikes and our histories, we bring that in as well. So, yes. There are overall patterns, but there's a lot of individual difference.
2: You've just actually articulated one of the most difficult parts about scoring a film. And really for our audience of composers and film music fans, here you have a composer of a film who's very well trained, uh, who's often, you know, the composers that we work with – Went to Juilliard, went to USC, went to NYU, went to Berklee College of Music. They know a lot about what they're doing, how to arrange and orchestrate and tempos and different kinds of patterns and harmonic progressions. And then you get a director that is non-musical. And you've just described what happens when the composer has a whole solution to something that's very thought out. And the director says, I don't like it. (laughs) Um, And it hasn't reached him. Uh, it's a really interesting thing because he either the composer's missed it and overthought it, or the director doesn't see a certain subtlety that might work. I've been through that a number of times. Often I just tell the composer, play it for him again in a week. Maybe he'll like it more. Mm. <laughs>
0: yes, you're absolutely right about that because repetition alone, just becoming more familiar with the music, can change the way that we hear that piece of music. I think it's so important to also remember that the everyday listener who doesn't have musical training, they can be extremely, extremely sensitive to music and they can have insights into music and be very moved by it. I've learned so much from my students who don't have musical training but can tell me why a soundtrack is working for them. So the one of the wonderful things about what the composers are able to do is they're able to reach all kinds of listeners so the listener Mm -hmm. who's coming in with a very different kind of background they're able to move them sort of paint with their musical paintbrush these colors that we can all see they might be different colors but there's a rainbow nonetheless
1: that's That's a special talent what you were talking about how people react musically trained versus not. Are, I'm, I'm curious, do you play any mus- musical instruments?
0: Yes, my training, I was a music major, and my training was uh, in piano. And mm. uh, so all the composing I did was at a piano, and I would not be able to do anything so elaborate or orchestrated as uh, the musicians that we see on score. In fact, I took an orchestration class. There was only one assignment that we were given. So we came on the first day and they said, this is orchestration and all you have to do is for these 10 weeks, work on one piece and orchestrate it. So that means put that to, (laughs) yeah, lots of different instruments. And I did that for 10 weeks and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. We gave all the music to a orchestra and I went and, you know, I had to conduct it. So I went to conduct it and it sounded like Cats drowning in, <laughs> like in which a... some
1: directors might want. You never know.
0: <laughs> it's it's a very difficult thing to be able to put the right pieces, the right notes into the right instruments to play. It's a real skill.
1: Is it hard for you to watch oh. watch anything Cause with all the studies and the and the, the stuff that you know, and plus your musical training. Are you able to just sit down and enjoy something, or are you picking stuff apart? Because as a filmmaker, I'm always watching for shots and and style decisions by the by the you know the crew putting the the film or the show together. But do you watch differently than us? Do you think?
0: No, I think I watch a movie and I just enjoy it for the movie. And if I have to sit and analyze it, I will analyze it. But usually I'm just watching as someone who's going to be carried away and lost in the movie. Um, Only occasionally I think about the score, because I think mine's a little different from your training, Kenny, because music comes in and out, and we're often not aware of its presence. So sometimes I find myself, even if I'm trying to listen to the music, saying, oh, when did that start or when did that end? And I sit there in the dark as well, you know, like everyone else, and I look at all the pieces of music that are listed at the end, and I go, when was that playing? When was that playing? (laughs) So, you know, I really think that I'm watching a film to be carried away by the story primarily, and then I can switch modes. Yeah.
2: Such a relief because um, I thought that was a really great question. I was wondering what the answer was because I was nervous that the answer would be different because I'm the same way. And I Mm -hmm. saw, um, you know, and here both of us have spent, all of us, spent so much time listening to film music. But the mark of any great film, of course, is that you are just so deeply involved in the narrative. Um, I saw just a few nights ago, I saw the movie A Quiet Place, with a great Mm -hmm. score by Marco Beltrami. And I'd been told, the score's amazing, the score's amazing. And I found myself doing the same thing, which is so freaked out by the movie. that Occasionally I'd say, ooh, I think there was a cool piece of music in that scene. But <laughs> wow. I was so distracted by what was yeah. happening that I just heard the very end of the cue. And I thought the same thing. When did the music start in this scene?
0: I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, it's so fan- fascinating that... We're not so aware of it and yet can have such a great impact. And it's interesting for me, Robert, to hear you say that because, you know, you're a producer of hundreds and hundreds of movie scores. So to hear that you can just listen to it purely and watch a film purely is, is just fascinating for me to hear. The other day, um, my husband and I were watching uh, The Wizard of Oz, the 3D version. I've heard of it. Yeah. And the 3D version, it's just fascinating to see this movie. Uh, And that's an example of I I was just swept away, even though it's a movie from many, many years ago, I was just swept away by the narrative.
2: I think one of the nice things about seeing a movie like The Wizard of Oz or any movie that we've seen many times is then we can start. Maybe distancing ourselves a little from the narrative because you know what happens next. Looking for some Easter eggs. Yeah, and look secrets. for the way that things really take place in the movie and how the composer made some decisions, and that I also enjoy. But the first time I see a film, I'm just a fan in the audience like anyone else. Yeah. Uh, trying to see it. the movie works. In fact, the only time I really hear the music in the movie is when it's bad. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say that it sticks out the best, as, wow, that's weird. The best weird. movies
1: and the best scores, you almost have to go back and listen because yeah. they're done so well that they're specifically not supposed to stand out as something standalone. You want to sort of be whisked away into the, into Absolutely. the um, yeah. We are. We are going to take one more break. And then when we come back, we had so many great questions sent in on our social media, uh, Instagram and Twitter. We're going to ask Dr. Sulan Tan some of your questions. And we're also going to be giving away to uh, one of the entries uh, an autographed copy of Dr. Sulan's book, Psychology of Music, From Sound to Significance, the second edition. And she's going to autograph it and send it to the lucky winner. Mm. Um, So much more to come. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey guys, it's Kenny. We're back to the show in 20 seconds, but we wanted to quickly say thanks to all of you who've supported season one of score the podcast. One of the most important things you can do is click subscribe on your podcast app. It's free. It takes just a second and it makes a huge difference in our growth. Thanks for your continued support. We're excited to bring you more great episodes in the future. Now back to the show. Welcome back. We're joined by Dr. Sulan Tan, all the way from Michigan. She's taking the time to come on the show and really break down some r- super interesting topics about the study of music and film music in particular. Uh, you remember her from Score, a film music documentary, and also uh, her segments in season one, The Inside Track. Um, we put out a little thing on our social media, if you're not following us, at the Score, at score the podcast on Twitter, Um, We wanted to ask you to ask questions for uh, Dr. Sulan Tan. So we had several submissions on both Instagram and Twitter. And one of the uh, lucky senders of a question, if you will, is going to win an autographed copy of your book, which Mm -hmm. um, is on our website, score-movie.com slash podcast. But is is it also on Amazon?
0: It's on Amazon and it's uh, published by Rutledge. So it's on Rob page as well.
1: Cool. So we're going to announce the winner of the book in just a bit, but we want to get to some questions. Robert, you want to start it off?
2: Yeah. In fact, one of the nicest things about the questions is that they're from so far away. All over the world. Really, the whole world. Awesome. Australia, Switzerland, New York City. Here's the first one from Sarah Goddard in Australia. She wrote us on Twitter, Sulan, what is it about adding vocals that makes a score more emotional? I've noticed with some films like Gravity and Wreck-It Ralph that they bring in vocals for the really powerful emotional moments. So I guess she's wondering, Sulan, if you could comment on the emotional effect that a choir or a solo voice has on the listener. She says this must go back centuries. Hmm. probably to the first time somebody sang.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I really liked Sarah's question because usually I get asked questions about instruments and people forget that the voice is the most natural musical instrument. So I think it's a very interesting thing to think about voice and the power of the human voice in soundtracks. And Robert knows a whole lot more than me about songs with lyrics. So I'm just going to be focusing on just the voice separate from the lyrics and the meaning of the lyrics. So I've already mentioned how we uh, are already hearing sound in the womb about three months before we're born. So the mother's voice is one of those sounds that is particularly uh internally transmitted into the womb. So it's one of the first contacts we have to our caregiver is through the sound of the voice, even before we're born. So it makes sense that there's something instinctive in us that makes human voice very powerful and very connecting. So when Sarah brings up gravity, gravity is a great example because we have Sandra Bullock, who is completely cut off, completely isolated. And what brings her comfort is voice. So there are a couple of times where she's outside the capsule and she's humming to herself. It's a way of sort of Hmm. feeling present, feeling her own body. And then there's a part, part where she's in the capsule, Soyuz capsule, I think, and she hears a voice being transmitted. And it's a male voice singing a lullaby, to a baby, and it calms her. And then at the end, I am trying to stay away from spoilers, but in the last (laughs) 10 minutes, we're probably good by now. (laughs) In the last 10 minutes, we've had Stephen Price's um, music, it's mainly instrumental. And then when we're supposed to start to feel a bit comforted, we hear voice coming in, a voice is added. And we hear that voice stronger and stronger towards the very end of the movie. So it kind of is so important in cutting through from the instrumental, which can be a little colder, to this warmth that's added that makes us feel like we're coming home. There's something just very grounding and comforting, warming about the human voice.
2: I love that. It's just so great. And it's so wonderful. And now, of course... I want to rush home and watch Gravity. Right, I know. (laughs) To the way it develops. Great question, Sarah. Thanks for listening
1: all the way in Australia. um, Let's go to question number two. This one is from Roberto Moreno in Zurich. Is that how you pronounce it? Zurich. Mm Zurich, Switzerland. He wrote in on Twitter and he wanted to, more of just an interest in discussing moments when there's consciously no music at all, no score. For these scenes, he says, they have a greater impact on him. Um, What is it about the decision to to put nothing in there, Um, and and why does that have more of an impact on us? Is it the uncomfortable nature of feeling silence? Um, How how can that be explained?
0: Mm -hmm. So Roberta's question, I think, is really interesting because we're usually talking about scores, and now we're talking about the absence of music. So... It's really important that music isn't wall-to-wall in a film because we can get habituated to it. That's the psychologist's terms for if we're exposed to something over and over and over again, we are attending less to it, we pay less and less and less attention to it until finally we've kind of faded it out from our attention. So if we have too much music, the music can lose some of its power. So that's important that there are some breaks. Uh, and I think Ro- Roberto does a good job of kind of answering his own question when he says that when the music isn't there, he listens more to the sounds that are inside the scene. And if you go back to that scene, the T-Rex breakout, breakout scene in Jurassic Park, something really important is happening there, and that is that it's happening in the rain I think it's really important to think about the soundtrack, not just as music alone, but it's how music and dialogue and sound effects work together as Mm -hmm. a whole for the most powerful effect. So that scene, the T-Rex breakout scene, is in the rain, and the water is something that's a constant sound. It doesn't change. We're not hearing the T-Rex roar against nothing. We're hearing it against the sound of the rain. And what's interesting about the sound of the rain is the rain is constant and it's not changing. So it's kind of like it doesn't care about the things that are happening in the scene. In Psycho, we have the same thing, falling water of the shower. So we hear the shower water, and then this horrible, terrifying uh, murder happens. And then what do we hear? The sound of the shower. Shh, still going on. So if we had music, like a musical score there, it might warm up the scene too much, or it might act like it's empathetic to what's happening. But instead, we get indifference. So here's the sound of the rain or the sound of the shower, and then something happens, and then it just continues like it's indifferent. It's an empathetic to what's happening.
2: I actually am ready to book my ticket to Kalamazoo to take your course. <laughs> I know, was I was going to say. Are so you, interesting.
1: Is your curriculum being going to be used anywhere else at any point?
0: Uh, my, you mean my course syllabus? Is,
1: is this type of course being taught anywhere else around the country is my question.
0: Yeah, psychology of music classes are being taught around the world, actually. Uh, I don't know of many... Many classes that are just looking at psychology of film music. I would love mm. to see more and more of those. It's certainly a class that students are drawn to. They love this kind of topic.
2: Oh, I would love great. it. If, I, yeah. if you
1: were teaching here in L.A., I would, I'd
2: be I'd be there. I would go. I Absolutely. thought you were going to say one little bit about silence in film in that the oldest trick in the book for two reasons that I can think of to go silent is number one. There's nothing scarier. Mm-hmm. So when a bad guy's going up the stairs instead of doing the trope of you know low notes or low cellos or low piano things that say, Oh, here comes the bad guy, just go quiet and the audience just clutch you can watch from the back of the room, the audience clutches onto them who's ever there with whoever they are with. Because when it's silent, you know something's gonna happen. And that something's gonna happen, the second part of silence is it really accentuates the entrance of the music. So the music has import, which is what you were saying, which is when it's wall to wall, you don't get the benefit of, as they say, laying out for a little bit so that when it comes back in, there's, oh, there's a feeling now. So uh, silence is very important to music. I think we have one more. Yeah, go ahead, please.
0: No, I was going to say, I love the way that you express that and especially how isolating silence is, that we feel so alone.
2: I think coming back to that movie A Quiet Place one of the things that was amazing is the trope of silence in a movie is almost the focus of the narrative which is they can't the bad I don't want to be a spoiler but the bad creatures only hear and so you only have to be silent I did just give the whole movie away <laughs> but so the score has to be very very selective about where it's going to score music because you're being almost conditioned in the first act of the movie to make no
1: noise. That was probably one of the most important spotting sessions in a movie in a long time. Yeah, Yeah, I was thinking about it. It's so important to the narrative of the film. So it's
2: a really interesting thing. You want to go with that last question? Oh, yeah, final question here. From New York City.
1: Thanks again to Roberto for uh, sending that in all the way from Switzerland. Yep. Uh, This one is from Nate Huntley in New York City on Instagram. Uh, When scoring a film in a franchise... How does the theme continuity affect our experience? Um, so, you know, in a for example, a, a Marvel film using the same theme for a character or a motif, how can that affect us and
2: and draw us in a little bit and help us follow the story? It's actually um, Sulana. Just to jump in here, it's actually a um, it's a very interesting issue with sequels at studios. I just can tell you from the studio point of view. Of course, the studio wants to do something that's very traditional in opera, the leitmotif, which is every time you see Robert Downey in Iron Man, you want to hear his theme. Every time you see Darth Vader, of course, you want to hear the march when he comes in or these themes are signals to audiences. It's almost like putting on the uh, T-shirt that says, here I am. Um, The studio really loves that. The composers, not surprisingly, don't. First of all, if you have a composer score, I don't want to refer to, you know, luckily Pirates of the Caribbean, you get the same composer. Star Wars, you get the same composer. But on every different superhero movie, you don't always have the same composer from picture to picture. Even on Harry Potter, you had John Williams kick it off. And then Patrick Doyle inherits the next one. So. You go to Patrick Doyle, who you want to do a fabulous original score and say, good news, bad news. (laughs) Good news is you're doing Harry Potter and isn't it great? Bad news is some of your cues are going to be by the other guy. We need you to use the other guy's music. And the composer often says, but wait, I could be original, I can be expressive. Or the composer knows I have to use some of the similar material. So I don't know. A little callback. Yeah. I don't know, uh, Nate, if this is sort of what you were wondering, but the continuity is important commercially and also narratively to the audience. And it's also can be an issue often in filmmaking, uh, which is how much continuity and how much freshness for the sequels and prequels. Well,
1: uh, James Newton Howard talked about that a little bit in our third episode uh, of season one um, referring to doing uh, fantastic beasts, but then having to call back to Harry Potter, that's even a different franchise altogether, oh, but it's, God, it's in right. the same world. Yeah. So you have to call back to certain themes when characters come in. But um, is there anything psychologically that helps us follow or, or join in to what the composer's trying to do or the filmmakers trying to do with, with keeping motifs in the story?
0: Yeah, I love your comments because I, I thought, thought it was really interesting to hear um, Robert talking about how composers might react to this, might respond to this as creative uh, people. In terms of the franchise and theme continuity, I think it's really, really important to the identity of the Film, right? So the continuity is important. It kind of makes me think about right now. I'm working on um, a, a book with two of my colleagues, uh, James Deaville and Ron Rodman. We're working on the Oxford Handbook of Music and Advertising, and it's the same sort of thing in advertising, where sonic logos, branding, uh, audio branding of. Uh, different companies is so important. So a franchise is the same sort of thing. You're trying to show that these things are all interlinked. And it's probably one way that sonically, at least, we can create this continuity from Uh, film to film, and also from films to other media. So, for example, franchises that have a film that also have a video game, for example, and other kinds of media as well. And, of course, when you're doing video game composing, it's a very different kind of composing. You have to be able to compose things that could be layered and could be looped uh, in ways Mm -hmm. because there's a lot more repetition And when you are a composer for film, you're kind of in charge of when the piece is going to begin and end and how it unrolls, how it unfolds. With a video game, you're not quite sure because it's based on what the player might be doing and where they're going, for example, and what they they choose. So I think that it all comes down to, just to reiterate what both you, Robert and Kenny, have both said, identity and continuity between all of these different films
1: it's like a like a commercial jingle when they start a new you know
0: right.
2: uh,
1: ba. You, uh, immediately you're like oh that's mcdonald's they they connect mm-hmm.
2: we are farmers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's interesting is that i had to for two decades link the two worlds of sonic identification and filmmaking with w- arguably what's known as one of the most famous logos in the world audio logos keep mm. so, um, <laughs> going I wonder if we're going to have to play a royalty you asked if he was going to sing that yeah, was close enough I got I think. it um, so that was you wanted to identify the motion picture what studio what was the brand and that was very uh, important of course Walt Disney with When You Wish Upon a Story this is or, audio or
1: THX, mm. <laughs> you know you're in for an audio treat oh, when you so heard nice. that noise yeah. back in
2: the day. People like it. Um, yeah.
1: I think we have time for one more. I have a another one that was sent in on Instagram. Actually, mm. can
0: I add something very quickly to that last part? Sure, Is absolutely. That fine. Yeah. So uh, when Robert was talking about the the uh, 20th Century Fox, it made me think about how important it is not just to have the continuity, but also as the times changed, uh, the orchestration changed a little bit, the style of how that uh, sonic signature was played was a little different. And I think that's really important too for franchises, that you hear the same motif, but things like the instrumentation, um, the things around it might change. So There's a little bit of variability as well.
2: Yeah, they've Mm -hmm. updated it. This is an actual... uh this would be an episode in itself the yeah. fox logo and the re-recording which was there was very few people left standing alive after that conversation because <laughs> it yeah. needed to be re-recorded uh and i think we talk about it a little in the our... didn't
1: i think brian tyler ended up re he redid the universal universal open,
2: was redone and but the, that
1: was the the, the the motif is still there the, but the there's familiar a lot sound, of but sensitivity. the instrumentation and composition. Yeah, a lot of here.
2: sensitivity to how it's done. And in the Fox logo, um, there was a, luckily, let's just leave it at this, David Newman was the, of course, the composer, arranger, orchestrator who re-recorded his father's composition so we all felt that genetically we were going to be safe (laughs) but uh it's a big issue for a studio if you change the logo change the instrumentation you either get oh that's fresh or oh that's wrong
1: yeah and (laughs) once you change it you can't you can't do it again really quickly yeah it's like similar with the the big companies and their their ad campaigns yeah right they change something you see flow on progressive for 15 years before they change it again but yeah it's, it's an interesting topic. Right. And
0: even when it comes to something like TV themes, um, that kind of variation is done. Bear McCreary talks about how in Walking Dead, um, the TV theme, he changes it a little bit every time. It's never exactly the same. That's great. So but he, you still have the identity, but the the variations as well.
1: Isn't he brilliant?
0: He's, <laughs> he's Bear. brilliant. Bear is
1: just taking, he's just taking this... Yep world by storm right now. He has, now. yep. Um, all right. That was a question from Nate in New York. Thanks, Nate. Uh, one last question from Xander. I don't know where Xander is uh, from, but uh, he sent in on Instagram. And we touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to give an opportunity to try and maybe answer this a little more uh, detailed. How does different instrumentation change how, we, how people perceive a cue or a piece of music? For example, if the same piece of music, such as a romantic cue is played with tromb- trombones versus a violin. How does that change how we feel uh, when we hear it? And, and and why does that maybe have that effect on us with the different instruments?
0: Yeah, there, the different instruments each have different timbres or different quality of the tone, and each one evokes something a little bit different. I think a great example uh, is in Up, from the married life montage, Hmm. it's interesting because in the married life montage, we have ups and downs in this couple's life, right? There are happy and very sad, very, very sad moments. And a lot of composers would take the motif and change it from major to minor. That's an easy way of kind of now it's sad, now it's happy. But if you listen to the married life montage, um, Giacchino never changes from major to minor. He's instead changing the speed. He's changing the style. He's changing many things, including the instruments, especially the instruments. So the instruments communicate to us what the emotions are in all of these episodes in this couple's life. So when we have the muted trumpet, I think it's a muted trumpet towards the beginning, that evokes a certain period of time. This is like, okay, this is sentimental. This is a pre- certain period of time in history. Then later on when we hear the bell-like high tones, that's every time they're talking about having children and babies. So mm-hmm. that gives a very different feeling. And then there's violins and strings for the waltz. And at the very end, you have the piano chord, just very plaintive piano chords at the end. So, so much is being communicated through the choice of the instruments
1: i'm not a crier but that's that married life scene i have to walk out of the room for that yeah especially when when it does slow down with the what is that a, is it i thought it was a xylophone is it it's bells
0: oh no i said it was bell like i think you're right it's a xylophone or a glockenspiel yeah
2: super nice question to xander is that xander, because it yeah. really xander. makes me think about how Coming back to your orchestration and example, the choice of the instrument is really choosing the voice for that particular melody. And do you want it and the examples that were used, you could play a beautiful melody on violin and then play it on trombone and it would sound maybe comic. And you don't want it to sound comic, you want it to be romantic and vice versa. So it just that's a great composer will know what is the proper voice.
0: Yeah. And there are certain kinds of instruments that will evoke something more romantic, like Xander is saying. So, for example, uh, strings. Strings, you can play the instrument so it will slide from one note to another. Ah, that kind of thing. Whereas a xylophone, you know, we were talking about glockenspiel and xylophone, you strike it and you just get one sound and then one sound, one sound. So it sounds bouncier and happier. So you want to have this comic kind of a, uh, you know, feeling that Xander is talking about you have these kind of bouncy instruments might be more easy than a instrument that's very sensitive, like the violin, for example. So when you talk about the timbre, too, it's not just the musical instruments, but also voice. Um, The other day I was listening again to Raya Yarbrough singing uh, for Outlander, the Sky boat song. She Mm -hmm. has just the right timbre for that song in her vocal tone.
2: See, we're going to do another episode on singers (laughs) and on pop songs because you've tiptoed into an interesting arena here with the particular vocalists and what makes a hit song. And there's a lot to that, which we're just, just heading into, but I think we're going to save it for the next episode. Yeah. We'll have to do
1: another thing. This has been so interesting and, and uh, I, Super. I, I hope everybody gets as much out of this as I did. Cause yeah. I'm, I'm so fascinated. And now again, when I jump into watching something, I'm going to be paying more attention to ventriloquism and <laughs> where I'm watching on the screen. And mm-hmm. my, my experience I probably won't be paying attention to the narrative very much because now I'm going to be looking for all kinds of stuff. Dan, I know <laughs> I want
2: to go back and see Gravity yep. and Jurassic mm. Park. Mm-hmm. Psycho, I've seen a lot, but maybe I'll watch again. You mentioned a number of films up. I have some watching to do. Well,
1: I do want to thank all of our uh, listeners for sending in these great questions, and um, I wish we could sit here. I, we don't want to take up too much more of uh, Dr. Tan's time, but um, that was just a round of applause for our <laughs> listeners. For uh, sending those in. And then we do want to announce now who's going to win the autographed book by Dr. Tan. Nice. Drum roll, please. Fire away. Congratulations to Sarah Goddard from Australia. It's going down under. The book is going down under. Uh, So we'll get in touch with Sarah and make sure that uh, she gets that autographed book. Uh, Psychology of Music from Sound to Significance second edition Rutledge published you can find it on our website score-movie.com slash podcast and also on Amazon or Rutledge
0: and congratulations Sarah I'm really looking forward to uh, signing this book for you I'll write a personal note uh, as well. And uh, from my colleagues as well, my co-authors of Peter Fordresher and Ram Harre. Uh, congratulations. It's great. And thank you so much for these really interesting questions that you have all sent in and your listeners as well. Um, Kenny and Robert, I really enjoyed this. This was so much Same. fun. I've I've learned so much from the podcast, I have to say
1: oh well thank you and we yes we want to thank you for listening to the show we're excited uh, as we mentioned earlier that uh, season two is coming back more info on that be sure to follow us uh, on our social media account twitter at score the podcast instagram at score movie we'll keep you posted on the details as they develop Uh, we want to thank again Dr. Tan for taking the time to join us Uh, We hope you stay warm in Michigan. (laughs) Stay warm. And uh,
0: have a happy new year. Thank you so much, Kenny. Thank you, Robert. What a pleasure this was.
2: I'm Robert Kraft. That's Kenny Holmes you've been listening to. That's true. Special shout out to Sulan, and we'll see you next time.